Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Have you ever looked at a patient's case and wondered to yourself, is this a biomechanics problem or a neurology problem? In most cases, the answer is yes. It's usually both. As we saw in the case we discussed last week, some of the subluxations produced effects that were primarily biomechanics in nature, and others produced effects that were primarily neurological. How do we know the difference, and does it even make a difference? Well, let's talk that through and see. Last week I had a patient that I was told couldn't walk. I didn't see him come in because I was with another patient, who I'll talk about in just a second. When I walked in, he was seated, so I wasn't sure how bad it was. In this office, we do a lot of teaching, so I'm rarely alone with a patient. In this case, I had two students in with me. We put up the x-rays, and this guy had an extremely posterior and inferior L5. Everybody could see it, so the students immediately pointed it out. Simple, right? Doing it's the hard part but finding it's the easy part. Not so fast. I still scoped him, and I still palpated him, and I asked him about his pain, which was mostly vague and severe. At that point, I adjusted his sacrum. I then tried a few different tables before I found that the knee chest was the best place for his L5. So, of course the students asked, why did you adjust the sacrum before the L5? I let them know that his condition was primarily biomechanical in nature. When he injured his low back, the amount of force was great enough to misalign the sacrum and the L5. What I did was I set the sacrum to create a good foundation to set the L5 to. With the L5, I didn't actually adjust it, but I was merely pumping it. I told them I expect to keep pumping it until the adjustment can actually be made, probably on a later visit, assuming the sacrum stays put. He was able to make, walk out of that first visit standing erect as the sacrum was his primary problem and not the obvious L5. He came in the next day and he was already greatly improved. This is an example of a biomechanics problem, even though the neurology is involved and affected. <clears throat> Let's compare that to the patient I saw right before that. It was a young woman with a lot of GI problems. For her privacy, I'll just leave it at that. Her x-ray showed pelvic rotation of 13 millimeters with only one millimeter of vertical displacement. Of course, I was with the students again and they saw this rotation as being so extreme that it just had to be the problem. And again, not so fast. This was when I began to ask questions. I needed to know if this was a biomechanics problem or a neurological problem. It's my opinion, based on experience, that some organs are vulnerable to pressure or torsion. The first among those is the uterus, and second is the bowel. I don't think it's a coincidence that they both sit low in the pelvis. So, the bowel can have issues of a biomechanics origin. It can also have issues of a neurological origin as well. So that's why I had to ask questions. I needed to figure out is if this was a biomechanics bowel problem or a neurology bowel problem. This obvious pelvic rotation had the others convinced it was a biomechanics bowel problem as its origin. Not a bad conclusion, but there were a few things the patient said that had me thinking this might be more neurological. One thing that fit a pattern that I've seen before was that she said she couldn't have a bowel movement for a long time, but then she would feel bloated and suddenly go a whole lot. This is something that can happen when you get a sort of 
paralysis of the transverse colon, or maybe paralysis is too strong of a word, and it's more like a paresthesia. In any case, it involves decreased motility and peristalsis of the colon. The feces gets backed up until there's enough of a buildup in mass and pressure behind it to push it past the dysfunctional portion of the bowel. This is the reason for the bloating and heavy production. This is what had me thinking it might be neurological. Of course, paralysis could be spastic or flaccid, so it tells us nothing about whether this problem is more sympathetic or parasympathetic. I scoped her, and my only reading was around L5. I did it two more times, and the reading was unchanged. Maybe I was wrong about the whole thing. I decided to tilt the scope, and a reading showed up plain as day at L2. I tilted it the other way, and the huge reading was still there. I palpated L2, and it was rock hard and immovable. I went back to the x-ray, and it all made sense to me. The pelvis, of course, was rotated externally on the right. All of the lumbar SPs were rotated to the right until L2 was magically in the middle. Actually, it was a PLI, but just slightly. The L2 was the problem, and everything below it was compensating to reduce the pressure. This was a neurological subluxation. More specifically, it was a neurological subluxation with biomechanic effects. That, the fact that both types involve elements of the other is what makes this so difficult and confusing. I think the best way to think about this is not at all, it's not an all or nothing kind of deal, but more like, is the subluxation predominantly neurological or predominantly biomechanics? The other difficult thing is that I can't back this up with research, data, or science in general. This really falls more under the art category. One thing that I've learned as you're developing your art, or practicing as most athletes do to develop their art, the ones who are most successful in the development process are the ones who have a clearly defined system for development. Structured practice is more beneficial than just going to the park and shooting around. You want to make sure that you work on everything but the two most important areas are the areas of your greatest weakness and your greatest strength. If you're good at something, get really good at it. And if you're bad at something, get better at it so it doesn't hold you back. Perhaps the most neglected aspect of building your art when it comes to athletics is the mental game. When you have a thinking model that's simple and accurate, it allows you to draw correct conclusions quickly. To be an effective Gonstead doctor, you need to develop that same skill. Without it, you can still work quickly, but instead of drawing quick, accurate conclusions, you simply make guesses based on what seemed to work last time. You can make money that way, but you can't build a legacy that way. Money is a false indicator of success. Of course, you can build something wildly successful and make a lot of money, but money is too easy to acquire without producing anything of value for it to be reliable as a measure of success. For example, was Bernie Madoff a success? He certainly had money. Or was Enron a success? They had money too. Unfortunately, the money convinced them they were more successful and even valuable than they actually were. Both situations ended in disaster for everyone who was involved. Never let money be your primary motivator. That'll preserve your character, and it might even preserve your life. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. The mental game is at least 50% of the game. The construct of biomechanics versus neurology is just one aspect of that mental game but it gives you a framework for how to think about the problem and its most likely course. For neurology, you can ask yourself the question, could these symptoms be explained by a paralysis or numbness? Dr. Denny O'Hara talks about it a lot, and we talked about it last week as well. Neurology involves either sensory or motor. Motor means changes we can see, 
and sensory means changes we can't see. A decrease in motor leads to paralysis. A decrease in sensory leads to numbness, which can also lead to paralysis as the body will not respond to a stimulus it doesn't know is there. In the end, these two problems can look nearly identical, but it still matters. Sensory versus motor can tell us if the associated vertebra is subluxated or compensated. These are all just clues. None of them are absolute. There is great danger in thinking that anything is absolute, just so you can move quicker and see more people. They're all just clues, and some people require more of your time, especially if they have multiple subluxation patterns overlying each other. Perhaps the most difficult part of our job is finding subluxations when there's more than one and the symptoms overlap. The best way to do this is to assess using biomechanics and neurology construct and look for clues as to which symptoms are caused by which subluxation. If you have a symptom that's not explained by the subluxation you found, ask yourself, is this symptom caused by biomechanics or neurology? This clue will give you an idea of where you should be looking for evidence of subluxation. Never neglect to scope or palpate on every visit. If you're doing your job right, these things will change. Wouldn't you like to know what the body's telling you today? We do integrate the tools at our disposal in an organized manner. I usually scope, then look at the x-ray, then palpate. But sometimes I go back to the x-ray, or I repalpate, or scope again so I can tilt the scope and see if I'm missing something that should be there. The approach is structured, but also open for whatever needs I need to do to be sure that I'm doing the right thing. I want to be clear that this biomechanics and neurology construct is just a tiny piece of the puzzle, and its intention is really just to organize your thoughts to see clearly and catch some things you might be missing. When I'm working, I find that my greatest weakness is when my thoughts get jumbled and my vision is cloudy, and, and that's far more likely the busier that I get. I've always been obsessed with the, with the idea that I need to be my best for the first patient, the last patient, and every patient in between. Of course, that doesn't always happen, and for a number of reasons, but I always hate it just the same. When I have a patient who's in desperation and I can't clearly see what's happening, I need to have a construct that gets me back on track. This biomechanics and neurology construct is usually the first step in that process. Cloudy vision comes from having too many options and no way of eliminating them. I don't want to incorrectly eliminate them for fear of accidentally eliminating the best option. By simply asking, is it biomechanics or neurology, I'm able to quickly begin eliminating options and my vision instantly starts to become clearer. Now you might ask, what if you're wrong? What if you say it's biomechanics when it's really neurology? Well, I can go down that biomechanics road to its eventual conclusion. If it fails to produce meaningful results, I might begin to wonder if I'm wrong. I can go back to that fork in the road and now go down the neurology pathway to find its eventual conclusion and see if that renders better results. In all honesty, I usually look at both roads on the initial visit, so I already have two courses of action before I even start. I guess that's just the quarterback in me, but here's how the thinking goes. I would usually walk up to the line with a primary receiver in mind, and a decision about whether or not to throw to them needs to be made in the very first sec second. I have a secondary receiver who's on a more complicated route that will come open in the second second if I make it there. I also have a bailout, so if I find myself still holding the ball at three to four seconds, I need to throw to the bailout immediately. I also have a particular defensive formation I'm looking for, and if I see it, I'm going to audible and scrap everything I just said. The point is, 
you have several potential actions to take, and they're based on time, so there's a sort of rhythm to it. This isn't exactly like that, but I do have a couple different options in mind. I'm going to see how the body responds, much like a defense. I'm then going to decide that I'm either all in on a particular action, or I'm going to pivot, based on what I've seen, to another option. This approach may not work for everyone. In fact, I'm quite sure it doesn't. But it works for me and my mind. That's why I'm usually hesitant to disclose exactly what I do, and I usually just say that you need to figure out your mind and what works for you. Find something from your background and how you were taught to think, and use it to play to your strengths and how your mind already works. Obviously, every subluxation involves biomechanics and neurology. This is simply a way to put it in perspective in order to organize your thoughts and think more clearly. I hope this has helped you to gain perspective on how to think about a patient and avoid getting bogged down in too many options. I wanted to follow up on what we talked about last week. One point we might not have made clear is that the connection between the TMJ and the C2 vertebra is the reason why it's necessary to use the condyle block when adjusting the TMJ. Without it, too much flexion can occur at C2 and this can lead to symptoms. We always teach to use the condyle block, but now you have a why behind it. I'm in the process of lining up some great guests to talk about some deep subjects. So I hope you'll join us for those. Until then, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.